0: One of my favorite tasks of ministry is presiding at weddings, counseling a couple as they craft their covenant, blessing this rite of spiritual passage. Just being present at this sacrament of joy and transformation are deeply rewarding offices. There are moments of melodrama, too, as when a dehydrated groom passed out cold as his bride walked down the aisle. (laughs) Carried unconscious from the sanctuary while the bride sobbed uncontrollably, the young man when revived had the presence of mind to murmur that he had been overwhelmed by her beauty. (laughs) True story. I was just a student intern presiding at that wedding. (laughs) A few years back, I received an urgent call from a bride-to-be asking if I could perform her wedding just three months later. She had reserved the sanctuary of First Church Unitarian in Littleton weeks before, but intended to be married there by an American Baptist minister, a friend of her family. But now there was a problem. When her fiance's parents found out that the minister was a woman, they hit the roof and threatened not to attend. Would I officiate? She asked. If not, they'd find a justice of the peace and forfeit a church wedding. I told the young woman I'd like to help her out, but I was troubled by the circumstances. If her fiance's parents had vetoed a minister because he or she was, say, African American or Asian or Latino, I said, I would not accept the office. And I doubted this case was distinguishable. I said I needed to think about it. I telephoned the Baptist minister who graciously told me I should feel free to perform the wedding. But the more I talked with her, the more I knew I could not. I never really get used to it, the minister told me, of the prejudice she encounters. Sometimes she's summoned to the bedside of a hospital patient who has called for a Baptist minister, but then refuses to talk with her because she's a woman. In her own church, someone took a stack of her business cards, wrote on each one, Timothy 2, and scattered them about the sanctuary. The second chapter of Paul's first letter to Timothy instructs I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. I told the bride to be, I could not perform her wedding and she seemed to understand. Soon after that conversation, the story broke that the Jesuit Urban Center in Boston had fired Sister Jeanette Normandine for assisting in a baptism. Sister Jeanette had poured holy water on an infant, recited liturgy, and anointed the child with oil. Church officials also objected to her wearing an alb and stole vestments reserved for priests. For these offenses, the popular nun was dismissed from the staff and evicted from her church-owned residence. Why are women such a threat to the church? Patriarchal religion, of course, stretches back thousands of years through all faith traditions, including our own the irony for Christianity from which Unitarian Universalism descends is that Jesus opposed patriarchy one of the reasons his ministry so threatened the powers and principalities of his day was precisely that he publicly consorted and conversed with women The New Testament makes clear that women played a major part in the Jesus movement during and after his lifetime. The story of Martha and Mary, Jesus' superlative praise of the anonymous woman who anointed him with expensive oil, the prominence of women in gospel accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection all confirm their leading role in supporting Jesus' ministry. The letters of Paul refer time and again to female deacons, teachers, and patrons of the early church. And these are only the texts that the male hierarchy of the church included in the canon that came to be called the Holy Bible. Last month, we looked at the early Christian movement known as Gnosticism, and the extraordinary Gnostic manuscripts discovered in 1945 at Nag Hammadi in Egypt. We saw how Orthodox Christian leaders feeling their power threatened condemned Gnosticism as heresy. But Orthodox resistance to Gnosticism was not merely theological or hierarchical. It was also patriarchal, a reaction against the ascendance of women in Christian theory and Christian practice. The Nag Hammadi manuscripts reveal that Gnostic Christians not only revered women as leaders and prophets, they experienced God as female, as well as male. In these texts, Mary Magdalene emerges from the shadows of the canonical Gospels and is revealed as a charismatic leader, a trusted, confident, and perhaps more, of Jesus, whose favoritism towards her provoked the resentment and opposition of male disciples. Hear the bold witness of the Gnostic gospel of Philip. The companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene, but Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on her mouth. The rest of the disciples were offended by it and expressed disapproval. They said to him, why do you love her more than all of us? The savior answered and said to them, why do I not love you like her? In this gospel, Mary sets the standard for the love of Christ. Also preserved at Nag Hammadi was the gospel of Mary. Just the sound of these words, the gospel of Mary holds for me a thrilling, subversive power. The gospel of Mary tells of a power struggle between Mary and Peter in which Mary prevails. After the crucifixion, she encourages the disheartened disciples by sharing with them teachings that Jesus had told her alone. An envious Peter objects, did he really speak privately with the woman and not openly to us? Are we to turn about and all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? But Levi intervenes, saying, Peter, you have always been hot-tempered. Now I see you contending against the woman like the adversaries, But if the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Lord knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. Chastened, the disciples go forth to preach. In another Gnostic title, Pistis Sophia, or Faith Wisdom, Peter mounts an earlier unsuccessful challenge to Mary's authority that is turned back by Jesus himself. Complaining that Mary is dominating the conversation and usurping the rightful priority of men, Peter urges Jesus to silence her, but is rebuked. Later, Mary confides to Jesus that sometimes she's reluctant to speak because she says, Peter makes me hesitate. I'm afraid of him because he hates the female race. Jesus answers that whoever the spirit inspires is ordained to speak, whether male or female. Although Gnostic Christian practices varied from community to community, the record is clear that women acted as prophets, teachers, healers, traveling evangelists, and perhaps even bishops. Surely women were drawn to Gnosticism in part because Gnostics worshipped a god both female and male. One Gnostic text, The Great Announcement, tells a creation story in which silence brings forth a great power, the mind of the universe, which is a male. The other, a great intelligence, is a female, which produces All things. The Apocryphon of John, another Nag Hammadi find, envisions an alternative trinity of God the Father, God the Mother, and God the Son. Still another Nag Hammadi manuscript, the mysteriously titled Thunder, Perfect Mind, sings a stunning anthem of divine feminine power. I am the first and the last. I am the honored one and the scorned one. I am the whore and the holy one. I am the wife and the virgin. I am the barren one and many are her sons. I am she whose wedding is great and I have not taken a husband. I am the midwife and she Who does not bear? I am the silence that is incomprehensible. I am the utterance of my name. I am shame and boldness. I am strength and I am fear. Give heed to me. The upwelling of female power supported by Jesus and carried forward into the early Christian communities was not to last. Some scholars contend that the church's suppression of women's leadership mirrored the reaction of Roman society, led by the middle class, against the social emancipation of upper-class women others suggest that as the church left behind the confines of private households in which women traditionally held sway and evolved into a more public quasi-governmental institution the long-standing stigma attached to women's public leadership drove them from power as the ascendant christian church merged with patriarchal roman culture women paid the price meanwhile Male theologians who stigmatized sex as sin saw women not as leaders, but as seducers, bearing the curse of Eve, whose only redemption lay in veiling their shame in silence and domesticity. Perhaps the empowerment of women, even though sanctioned by Jesus himself, was just too threatening to men, scrambling for their own perilous foothold in the increasingly powerful hierarchy of the church. Whatever its motivations, the reaction against women was swift and effective. Tertullian, one of the most influential of early Christian theologians, denounced the female leadership of the Gnostic movement. These heretical women, how audacious they are. They have no modesty, They are bold enough to teach, to engage in argument, to enact exorcisms, to undertake cures, and it may be even to baptize. Prohibitions of women speaking or teaching in church were hastily drafted, attributed falsely to St. Paul, and apparently inserted into manuscript copies of his authentic letters. By the time the scriptural canon was fixed by the Orthodox Church around the year 200 CE, virtually all feminine imagery of God had been expunged. Not coincidentally, we find no evidence after this time of women taking prophetic, priestly or episcopal roles in the Orthodox Church. In the nearly two millennia since we have made progress in our religious communities, as in society at large, toward full opportunity for women's leadership. Unitarian Universalists have often led the way. In 1863, Universalists ordained Olympia Brown, the first woman minister formally recognized by a religious denomination. The Unitarians followed eight years later with the ordination of Celia Burroughs, Today, more than half of active Unitarian Universalist ministers are women, including, of course, our own Reverend Lilia Cuervo, who as a girl in Colombia wanted to be a Roman Catholic nun, but was told she was demasiado vivaracha, too vivacious. (laughs) Their loss is our gain. Today, six out of 10 Unitarian Universalist seminarians are women, and of the 22 candidates going before our Ministerial Fellowship Committee later this month, 17 are women, that's 77%. Although no woman has yet been elected president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, that glass ceiling is destined to shatter and soon. Despite continuing theological, scriptural, and cultural obstacles, the irresistible rise of women's religious leadership is accelerating. Catherine Jefferts Shorey is presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, and Dr. Ingrid Mattson is president of the Islamic Society of North America, the first women to hold these offices. Beyond their ascension in religious hierarchies, women in unprecedented numbers are theologians, scholars, spiritual directors, chaplains, pastors, and activists in religious communities. These advances lead Maureen Fiedler, host of NPR's Interfaith Voices and author of the recent book Breaking Through the Stained Glass Ceiling, to proclaim that the tide has clearly shifted and the acceptance of women leaders in religion appears to have reached a tipping point in many faith traditions. Patriarchy has deep roots and long branches, yet it can and it shall be uprooted. Nearly 2,000 years ago, women in the early Jesus movement led as priests and prophets. The Orthodox Church sought to silence them, but their voices resound still. They speak to us today through the ancient manuscripts of Nag Hammadi and through every woman who finds her voice and speaks her truth. Amen and blessed be.